John 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. But there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself, who has sent me, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? And Father, we humbly ask as we open the scripture now that you would open up our minds to comprehend these scriptures, that you would open our hearts and our understanding to hear what you, by the voice of your spirit, would want to say to each and every one of us present in this hour to the truth of your word. Lord, you know what we need and what we're asking. Speak to us now by your spirit's ministry through the word of God, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, having a right perspective on things certainly helps us to see things more clearly and helps us to be able to see things we're looking at a lot more accurately. The question becomes, how do we actually obtain a proper perspective, therefore, for our lives? And I think that's something that we all long for to have a right perspective on things and I think the answer to that becomes this the way to obtain a proper perspective is realizing that a whole lot of what is happening in your world a whole lot of what is transpiring in your life really a good percentage of that is unfolding because it's intended to lead me and you to Jesus whether it's the unsaved person, and I look back on my life before I met Jesus, whether it's the unsaved person being led to Jesus to meet him initially, that they might be saved and come to realize that that's what God's plan is for their life, to know Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, or whether it's the believer, if you're a Christian this morning, just being led closer to Jesus, that we might know him better and trust him more and walk more closely to him. Ultimately, us being led to Jesus is quite honestly the point of why everything is actually happening so often among us in, in our lives. And in this section, as Jesus continues his teaching now, he's indicating in this passage as we read it together that whether it's the people that God sends into our lives 
or whether it's the works of God that are happening among our lives or whether it's the very scripture itself when we look into it, the ultimate goal from heaven's perspective is that we would fix our eyes upon Jesus because that is the best way to have a proper perspective on everything in life. Now, the backdrop, remember, of what we're looking at here, we're right in the middle of sort of a, you know, a teaching or a time when Jesus is speaking. That's why all the words are in the red there in your Bible, most likely. Jesus is in the middle, remember, of addressing the religious leaders, the religious Jews among Israel, primarily because they are very angry and it tells us in the prior part of the chapter they actually want to kill him at this point in time because he has just claimed that he is God he's just openly and directly and unashamedly indicated that he himself is God equal with the father in heaven and they're extremely enraged by this and now Jesus as he continues in our teaching is going to give if you would almost in a judicial sense it's like we're in a courtroom here he's going to give multiple witnesses to indicate and validate his claim that he is God he's going to give evidence that demands a verdict that yes he indeed is God that he is God in the flesh having sent from heaven as the son of God to dwell among us on this earth so we'll see he's almost calling different witnesses to the stand as we go through this look with me as we pick up in verse 30 where Jesus says here I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge and he says my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the father who sent me so Jesus here notice in the first person speaking of himself Again, as he did earlier in the chapter we saw last week, is again admitting here that he can do nothing independent of his Father in heaven. That they work completely in cooperation together. And he's almost being in his teaching here somewhat repetitive to an extent. And that's somewhat encouraging for people like myself who teach because sometimes you don't like when teachers are repetitive. But when I look at the teaching of Jesus and the word of God, there is repetition in the Bible because one of the greatest ways we learn is how often how. Repetition, repetition, repetition. So whether it's the coach putting you through the same drills, whether it's the teacher restating the same truths, Jesus here is somewhat repetitive in what he's just declared of, I can of myself do nothing. If you look back in verse 19, Jesus said back there in verse 19, most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. And then somewhat repetitiously now in the first person, we read verse 30 again. I can of myself, Jesus says, as if they didn't hear the first time, I can of myself do nothing. So again, remember the implication when Jesus says this, I can of myself do something. The implication is here, not his incapability, but an issue of independence. Jesus here, as a man, is reminding us that he lived totally reliant and totally dependent upon his Father in heaven. That everything that he did in his life, his ministry, his words, his actions, his miracles, it was all done completely in dependence and cooperation with his Father in heaven. He's not making an admission that he does not have power or authority or that he's somehow incapable. Again, remember, Jesus was God in human flesh he's the lord of all 
So he's not admitting his incapability. He is indicating that he operated in a way of relational unity of oneness with his father. And what he's saying here is that I would not and I could not say or do anything independent of my father in heaven. That everything that I do, I do in dependency upon him. I do in cooperation. And he's saying I would not act independent of him in my life or ministry. So we see that this union of the father in heaven who they knew was God and Jesus, again, pointing to his deity, that Jesus would not say or do anything without the father's involvement without the Father's leading, without the Father's permission, and without the Father's partnership as he served. That's why he says, going on in verse 30, as I hear, that is from the Father, I judge. That's how I make judgments or decisions. And my judgment, therefore, he says, is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So any judgment or decision on any matter or any person that Jesus made while a man on this earth living in flesh always came as a joint decision, he tells us, of communication between himself and his Father who was dwelling at that time in heaven. Because of that reason, that's why every judgment and every decision that Jesus made about every matter and about every person he interacted with, that's why his judgment was absolutely righteous. It was perfect because it had perfect evidence. It had the evaluation of the Father from heaven and it had the perfect awareness and evaluation of the Son on the earth. So there was no lack of evidence and therefore the judgment of Jesus was always accurate. He tells us as well in verse 30 why he didn't desire, even if he could, why he would not desire or want to do anything independent of the Father's involvement. Great declaration. Jesus says it's because, verse 30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So as a man, notice Jesus, again, remember, who is the perfect representation of what a man is supposed to be on this earth. As a man, Jesus did not live in a self-serving way or self-seeking matter. He was not pursuing his own preferences for life. He was not chasing after his own interests or seeking to fulfill his own desires. He was not living his life in a way to do as he wished and wanted. Rather, he tells us that he sought to pursue what his father wanted for his life. He sought to pursue those things that were in alignment with pleasing his father and meeting the desires of his father. He lived in such a way as a man to seek to fulfill and accomplish the will of his father and to honor the one who sent him. Jesus is going to say in the sixth chapter of John, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. So again, Jesus knew he had been sent to this earth to perform what the father intended for his life. There was this awareness with Jesus that his life was not to be lived out for himself, but his life was actually to be lived out for someone else, to be lived out for the will of his father, the will of God. And even in the hardest times, Jesus would always still surrender saying things like what? Not as I will, but as you will where he would say things like, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And we look at the life of Jesus and the statement of Jesus here. And man, what a great ideal for us to aspire towards as those who claim to be followers of Christ. If we claim to be followers of Christ, then that means like that we should be growing in Christ-likeness. 
And Christ-likeness meant that Jesus said, I do not, he says here, seek my own will, but the will of the Father in heaven. And, and as Jesus' spirit, if you're a Christian this morning, the resurrected Christ, the living Christ, the Bible says Christ dwells in us. So the same Jesus who lived in a body of flesh on the earth at one time, that same Jesus is alive and he is alive in you, dwelling in you, if you are indeed a Christian, which means the same spirit of Christ that spoke those words has the exact same desire and interest as he lives now in your life and in your body of flesh. That is the desire of Christ. The desire of Christ is that within you, you would not live out your own will, but you would seek the will of God instead. And to a greater and greater extent, may that be our experience where we're not seeking our own will, but instead we are seeking the will of God. And great thing to ask this morning as you evaluate your life, to what extent right now are you seeking your own will? Because the truth of the matter is, if we want to be very honest with ourselves, that's a constant struggle inside of every one of our lives. There's this constant wrestling for who is going to rule on the throne of my heart. And there's this constant battle that goes on within us where we want to live for our own self-fulfillment. We want to be the master of our own fate, the captain of our own soul, and that's the human struggle. That's the human struggle. There's a book that I read years ago. It's very good called Christ Indwelling and Enthroned. And the title, which is usually the only thing I usually remember from books. That's why I hope they're good. <laughs> but that title is the message. Christ is indwelling. But is he enthroned? See, Christ is indwelling if you're a Christian. But is he enthroned? Is he the one ruling on the throne of our heart? That's the issue of lordship. And that's the challenge of not my will, but the will of God be done. To what degree this morning are you pursuing the will of God? Are you saying, Father, I don't want to live for my own will. I've tried living for my own will before. It doesn't work out too well. And Lord, it always ends in emptiness and frustration and taking wrong turns and getting lost and getting on detours. Lord, what's your will for my life? I don't even want my will for my life anymore. Lord, what is your will for my life? Please show me your will that I might seek after your will. And listen, even when it's hard, those are the occasions to learn how in submission and in faith to surrender to the will of God. Just like Jesus to say, Lord, even though it's hard, Lord, even though I would desire my will is that it would go this way. My will is that this would happen, but Lord, nevertheless, not my will. But your will be done, Lord, because that's what's best ultimately. And even as Jesus knew he was sent from heaven for that very purpose, we need to realize we were saved for that purpose. That's one of the reasons you and I were saved. Not just so that you get to go to heaven. You were saved to begin to learn to follow the will of God for your life rather than your own will to walk in the lordship of Christ. Verse 31, Jesus says, If I bear witness, however, of myself, my witness is not true. So Jesus understands. He just spoke in first person directly about himself and he knows human nature. So he now begins to address the anticipated skepticism or critics that probably have just heard him spoken of himself, and some may think Jesus was just into self-promotion, that he was exalting himself to be equal with God, uh, and he understands that Jewish law stated that one person could not credibly testify, certainly of their own self, because truth of the matter is, you know, people make things up about themselves. And self-promotion 
is just human nature. It's human nature to want to promote ourselves, to make ourselves sound better than we are. And because people make things up and pretend things, just one witness alone, the law even stated, was not ever sufficient evidence to establish credible fact on any judicial proceeding. The Bible says in the law that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter would be established. And Jesus knew that's how the Jews operated. There needed to be at least two or three witnesses who could testify to the credibility of the same facts to verify and validate something was true in any judicial proceeding. So Jesus understanding and wanting to honor Jewish law and to help people have the evidence that demands a proper verdict, therefore is now going to, as we go on, as I said, cite multiple different witnesses to prove his credibility in the fact that he indeed is God and that his claim is true. He begins in verse 32 to call his first witness to the stand. He says, there is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, referring to John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. So Jesus reminds them of the first and very recent credible witness that they all knew because he had just been testifying in that day among Israel prior to the time of Christ. So we almost have Jesus here. If you can hear him, he says, uh, I'd like to call my first witness to the stand. I'd like to call my first witness to the stand to validate my claim that I am God. My first witness's name is John. Most know him better as John the Baptist. And Jesus states here two times in one verse, he bears witness of me. Again, we saw the ministry of John the Baptist. He came on the scene, remember, preaching in the wilderness, baptizing people in water who identified and agreed with his message. And Jesus here is reminding them of what John's message was. What was John's message? Remember, he said, repent. Or the idea is turn from your sin. And he said, because the kingdom of God is at hand. The idea is that there is a king coming who is very near. And he said, there's one coming after me who is the king. And John's ministry was clearly seen by the people in Israel as divine, as from God. Remember, multitudes of people were going out and responding to John's supernatural ministry from God. And Jesus reminds them here in verse 33 of how their curiosity caused them to go seek answers from John because they sensed that John was from God. He says there in verse 33, you sent to John. Remember, they went and sought him and he has borne witness to the truth. So Jesus says, when you went to examine John, he bore witness to the truth. And what was the testimony when John was, if you would, cross-examined by the religious leaders in Israel? Well, jot in your notes, John 1, verse 19 through 34, because there it tells us that the religious leaders, the Jews, sent the priests and the Levites to John, remember? And they began to question him, saying to him, who are you? Are you the Christ? And, and what do you say about yourself? And John began to decline. Listen, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. He said, all I am is a voice crying out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. He said, but there's one who's coming after me. And that one, he says, I'm not even worthy to touch the, the strap on his sandals. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with power. And John ultimately then proclaimed as he saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb 
of God as he pointed to Jesus and it tells us in John chapter 1 verse 34 that John said and I have seen and testified regarding Jesus that he is the son of God so Jesus says my first witness he testifies of me and he testifies of the truth and the first witness's final closing statement was Jesus is the son of God he is God Verse 34, Jesus then says there, yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Again, notice Jesus is not insecure in the slightest bit of who he is. However, Jesus is so loving and Jesus is so humble in who he is, though he is God being cross-examined by men, Jesus here says that I'm willing to stoop down and to meet mankind at their need and in his humility and love, notice he will do whatever he can to connect with us, whatever he has to do to reach us. Do you see what Jesus says? Look at the text there, verse 34. Jesus says, I'm just saying these things that you may be saved. So Jesus is saying here, it's not that I don't know who I am, it's just that my highest ideal, ideal is I want to see you saved. I want to see you come to understand the plan of God for your life and to understand your condition. When Jesus says that you may be saved and the Bible teaches we need to be saved, that's an indication, guess what? That we need to be saved. That's the first step. The first step is a person coming to the realization that they're not good enough. That no matter how good you try and be, no matter how religious you try and be, you will never be worthy of entering into the presence of God because we're all sinful. We all make mistakes. And listen, it only takes breaking one law to be a lawbreaker. You can be the biggest criminal on the planet or you can be somebody who, who, who jaywalks and breaks the law. You're a lawbreaker. You have now broken the law. You're a lawbreaker. You're an imperfect person. You've committed a crime. And God says spiritually, everybody's a lawbreaker. In thought, word, and deed, everybody sins. And one sin, one mistake makes you a sinner and sinful, unrighteous people do not have access into heaven unless that sin is taken away and they're made acceptable in the sight of a holy God so they can have access to heaven. That's why we need to be saved. We need to be saved. The good news is that God has made a way for us to be saved and experience that by coming to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And he went on to say, For God did not send his Son into the world that the world will be condemned, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. That's the heart of Jesus. So Jesus says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to even humble myself to say the things that I need to say, he says, the reason that you may be saved. So he says, even these things about John the Baptist and how he came and he spoke about me to reveal your condition and to tell you that I was the Lamb of God to take away your sin, he says, I say these things because I want to see you get saved. And I look at this and I think, man, the love of Jesus that he so greatly wants us to be saved that he uses, like John the Baptist, the testimony of people among us in our lives to talk to us about our condition, to point to us to Jesus as the salvation and the solution for our spiritual condition. And perhaps to some extent you can relate to that. 
Maybe it wasn't John the Baptist particularly, but in your life, it was some person that God sent into your existence. Maybe it was a collective group of people that God kept bringing into your environment and atmosphere that kept reminding you that you needed to be saved, that indicated to you the truth about Jesus and pointed you to Jesus. And maybe in your past, you can look back. And I know I can in my life. I remember working at a particular grocery store and having a, a, a guy that worked next to me, one or two registers down, Javon, and, and I was in you know sort of an inner city environment. People would come in and they'd be nasty and rude with you. And I would get so frustrated with people. And he would be so nice to people. And I couldn't stand them. I wondered if they paid him extra money. He was so nice to people. Why would you be so nice to people? Why don't you get irritated with people? Why do you have so much peace and patience and kindness? And, and, and God used him. And then God used the person who was my best friend, became a born-again Christian. And then he's talking to me about the Lord. And God just kept bringing people into my life that testified of the reality that I needed to be saved and how wonderful that God does that like John the Baptist. He puts people into our lives like that to point us to the fact that Jesus wants us to be saved. Look at verse 35. Jesus finally says of John the Baptist that he was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. So referring to John the Baptist's life and his testimony, Jesus says that he was a bright light in a dark world. He was a bright and shining lamp. By his life actions and by giving light through the words, he showed what the truth of God was. He revealed the truth about Jesus. And what a great example, a bright and shining lamp that gives light for all of us today as followers of Christ that in this season and in our dark day now, we would be bright and shining lamps that give light to a very dark world and to lots of people who are wandering around in the dark and don't even realize they're in the dark because they don't see the truth of their condition. They don't understand their need of Jesus that through our lives and our words spoken, we can give light to people who are lost in the dark. Remember what Jesus said of us in Matthew 5 regarding us being his followers? He said, as my followers, you are the light of of the world the only light in this world we are it we can stick our heads in the sand and cry and complain the world's getting darker and is there anybody worthwhile to vote for or we can realize that this is what the world's scheduled for darkness and our calling would be way better used instead of complaining and whining being bright lights for Jesus and trying to reach people spiritually and impact our world. Philippians 2 says, As children of God, we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Well, Jesus is going to call a second witness to the stand now. Verse 36, he says, But I have a greater witness than John's <clears throat> for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So the second witness Jesus uses to validate his divinity is even stronger. It's not human testimony. It is the divine, miraculous works that showed the power of God. Jesus says here in our verse, the very works that I do, 
they also bear witness of me that the Father in heaven has sent me. The same miraculous works the Jews saw God doing in the Old Testament, now Jesus himself living on the earth was duplicating them in his life and ministry. And in the very scriptures, God even foretold and promised that when he sent Messiah into the world, that there would be ways to identify the Messiah and the deliverer whom God had sent. Isaiah 35 said that the blind would see, the lame would walk, lepers would be cleansed, and the deaf would hear. And guess what Jesus was doing? Those very things, those very works and miracles of God through his life were purposeful to testify and to validate who he was, the Messiah that God had sent. The Savior that had come from the Father. They were intended the works to convince and assure people so they didn't need to have question or doubt. To validate who Jesus was in a way that people had substantial evidence to believe as they saw the works that testified of him as the Son of God. And notice Jesus says about his works in our verse here, these are the works that the Father has given me to finish. I like that. Works that the Father had given him to finish. The Father gave Jesus ministry works. He gave him miraculous works that as he interacted with people during his time on this earth with various needs and issues, health issues and mental issues and spiritual issues and relationship issues and life problems, the works that Jesus was doing, he was saying, these are the works the Father has given me to finish during my time here. It seems as Jesus lived out every day in his life and ministry, there were works that the Father would communicate to him that he was to perform and then he would finish and fulfill those works. He would complete those works. And again, for you and I this morning as followers of Christ, with the spirit of Jesus Christ now living inside of you and I, to some extent, we are called to the same thing. There are works for you and I to finish as children of God and as followers of Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are not saved by works, but it says we are saved for works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, listen, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, do you know another reason why you're saved beyond just going to heaven is that God, before you were even saved, looked at your life and he knew your, 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 you know, your personality and your idiosyncrasies and who you are. He knew what your sphere of influence would be. He knew what family you would be in and what community you would live in and what job you would work in and all the people that would you know, intersect your path. And God said, boy, I could really get some good works done through her. I could really get some good works accomplished through him. So I'm going to save him because I have good works for that person to walk in, to fulfill, to finish and to complete. Well, that, that kind of makes the Christian life somewhat exciting. That every day you can roll out of bed and say, Lord, uh, what work? That's a good thing. Would you have me to do today? Maybe it's just being nice to your spouse. Maybe it's for once just being a little more patient with someone or speaking something kind to a person who's really going through a hard time or that person in your job whose world is falling apart and you're the only person with enough care or courage to say, could I pray for you? That would blow their mind in the midst of their life falling apart and maybe that's the good work. Maybe it's being the one employee who actually works ethically and honestly. 
when everybody else is cutting corners and cheating, and whatever it may be. But there are good works that God wants us to finish and to complete. It's a part of your life as a Christian. Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men, look, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's one of the ways that we testify to the reality of God's existence. Verse 37 and 38, Jesus goes on to say, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because he whom he sent, him you do not believe. So Jesus' next witness, the third witness he calls to the stand now on this trial of his deity is someone with greater credibility than any other. And he says, that is the Father himself. Look what Jesus says there in our text. He says, the Father himself, not just John the Baptist and my works, but the Father himself, he testifies of me. And that happened directly a couple times during Jesus' life and ministry when the Father would speak directly from heaven and he would validate with his own words and testify as a witness to exactly who Jesus was. One of the cases we know most familiar is the baptism of Jesus, where, remember, Jesus, Matthew 3 records it, comes to John the Baptist to be baptized, and John tries to forbid him, and he says, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, permit this to fulfill all righteousness. And and John submits, he baptizes Jesus as the initiation of his ministry, public ministry, and the indication of publicly who he was. And at that moment, what does it say? It says, the, 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 the heavens opened, And the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus. And then it says, And the Father spoke from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And whether it was his baptism or his transfiguration, I think it's fair to say that's pretty good testimony. When the heavens open and the Father in heaven says, That's my Son. I think that's that's pretty clear there. I mean, I think that's evidence that demands a verdict there. I guess he is God then. Because God just said he was God. I mean, that's pretty clear testimony there. So Jesus says, my father has testified of me. And not just these miraculous occasions, but the father in heaven also testifies by an ongoing work in the conscience of every human being. Listen to what Jesus says in John 6. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What Jesus is telling us there is that the Father in heaven is constantly at work by his Spirit, testifying to the conscience of every single human being and testifying to the conscience of every person through life experiences they go through, through the times in those still quiet moments when they're searching life and trying to figure things out, that the Father is always speaking to the conscience of human beings, testifying to them of the reality of their own condition and the reality that they need Jesus because he's trying to draw them to Jesus. Jesus says, nobody can come to me unless the Father is the one drawing them. What an amazing thing to realize that God the Father is always trying to communicate to humanity. The sad thing is, is that many reject the testimony of God's voice and they suppress what God is saying to them. That's why Jesus says here in our text, you've neither heard the Father's voice nor do you hold on to the truth of his word. He said the proof of that, because whom he has sent, you don't believe. 
Again, what the Bible is telling us here in the voice of Jesus is that the Father is always speaking to people. The Father, you know, you could never hold God guilty for not making it clear enough to every human being who Jesus is and their need of Jesus and their condition because the Father is always drawing and speaking to people about Jesus Christ. But here's the point Jesus is making. Yet if a person doesn't want to hear, it's not because they can't hear, it's because they don't want to hear what God is saying to them. And they're suppressing the truth or they're resisting what God is saying to their conscience. The truth of the matter, it's not because people can't hear what God is saying. God's an impartial God. He's a loving God. The problem is, is that people just don't want to hear what God's saying. And in the same way, you can talk to me and I can even act like, give you ear service. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. And the reality is, I don't care an ounce about what you're saying. If I do that in a counseling session, please don't misunderstand. I just might have had a bad day. <laughs> that probably didn't sound good coming from me here. Whoa, that sounds like my last counseling service. Maybe I'll go to another place. Yeah. But people just ignore God. God is always talking to people. He's speaking to the conscience of every human being. But if people don't want to hear what God's saying, Jesus says, you won't hear the Father's voice. You, you, you'll let his word go in and you'll just cast it right out and you'll resist it. So what a sad reality well jesus wants to call another witness to the stand if three wasn't enough the next witness he calls to the stand to validate his deity is the word of god itself look as he goes on verse 39 he says you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are which testify of me but you're not willing to come to me that you may have Life Again, notice, many of the Jews in Jesus' day, we know historically, were very, very devoted people to the Scriptures. Uh, I mean, even in the way they were raised, Jewish children, their religious upbringing, they were raised to know their Bible, to know the passages in the Bible, and then add into that the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were zealously dedicated to a vast knowledge of Scripture. So much so that they would spend hours and hours. Some of them even had, imagine, the first five books of the Bible committed to memory. The Pentateuch. I mean, that is, this is beyond my comprehension. Hoping in this diligent study of Scripture and this vast desire for greater spiritual knowledge, hoping this acquired some higher spiritual status for them. And it began to make them, as they searched out the scripture like that, it began to make them feel more holy. It began to cause them to think somehow there was spiritual superiority because they knew all these vast passages of scripture. But Jesus testifies that their end goal in searching and studying out the scriptures was unfortunately off base. They felt because they devoted so much time to the scripture that that religious work of reading and studying the scripture, that that religious work somehow made them spiritual or righteous and apparently even made them have the right to have access into heaven to eternal life. That's what Jesus says there in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them, in that, that you have eternal life. Now, that, that's, that's quite a, a shocking thing. The mistake what Jesus is conveying here is amidst all their study of the Bible, they were missing the primary point of Scripture. And he tells us what it is there, verse 39. He says, these, the Scripture, are they which testify of me. 
What Jesus is conveying, what the Bible teaches us, is that the scripture above all else is intended to reveal Jesus to us. That's the purpose of the book that we hold in our laps this morning. Whether it is the unsaved person being led to discovering Jesus as personal Savior and Lord, and then as well the believer to help us to keep growing into a deeper relationship with the Lord. That is the purpose of the Bible. That is the purpose of the Scripture, that the Christian may grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus indicates in his own words here that though the Scripture, which at that time, remember, was just the Old Testament, though it was indeed filled with records and historical stories, and it was filled with poetry and doctrines and commands and prophecies, that it was all written in such a way that it would testify to a person to the person of Jesus. In Luke 24, interesting passage, Jesus is walking with two disciples on the road of Emmaus and it tells us this, Luke 24, that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Boy, I wish I had the podcast of that teaching. That Jesus, walking with two disciples on the Emmaus Road, began to talk to them about the Old Testament. Say, do you see that sacrifice there in the Old Testament? That actually speaks about me. Do, do you see the priests and the priesthood and all that? That actually is, that's a foreshadowing of, of me as the great high priest. And do, do you see this event that happened in an Old Testament story where the water was bitter and, and, and a piece of wood was thrown into the water and then the waters became sweet? And do you see how that... That when you add the wood of the cross, when you add the cross into a bitter situation, it can take away bitterness and make things sweet. You see how that, that spoke of me. And all these prophecies, they speak of me. And he took them through the Old Testament, showing them how the Old Testament spoke so much concerning himself. And yet they were missing that whole reality. Now, I look at this and it reveals to us pretty strongly that we can diligently study the Bible and fail to experience the primary purpose for its existence, which is to have an encounter with Jesus, which is to come to know our Lord in a deeper way. And that can happen to people who are very religious and devoted to a system, even to a system of Christianity. Let's be very real. There are indeed people who know well the word of God, but don't know the God of the word. They know portions and passages out of the Bible, but they miss the person behind the pages. And they've never come into a genuine personal experience with what God intended, which is to meet Jesus. And to know Jesus in a real and meaningful way. And this can happen to all of us as believers as well, who love to read and study the Bible diligently. It's a good thing to love the Word of God, but do you love the God of the Word? And as we study the Bible diligently, and listen, especially as a Calvary Chapel, we are a movement of churches who love the Scriptures who put a lot of emphasis upon the Scriptures and studying the Word of God because we believe it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training and righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But we can become so caught up into academia and acquiring more knowledge of the Word of God that we start to miss the primary purpose and existence of the Scriptures themselves. 
which is to bring us into a deeper relationship with the Lord, to come to know Him better, to encounter Jesus through our time of Bible study and reading the Word of God personally, to hear what Jesus is saying to me. Boy, this is an area where I think we have to examine ourselves. Could that be our error at times? Where we love the Word, but the Word becomes more of an academic thing rather than something where we're in the Word saying, Lord, I want to spend time with you. Reveal yourself to me. Speak to me. I want to spend time with you through your word, not just spend time getting information out of your word. Jesus says this was a problem with them. He says, verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So again, they were rejecting what the very scripture testified was that Jesus was who could give them life. Their zeal, if you would, for Bible knowledge, you could say was blinding them to a relationship with Jesus. And again, as I said, if our reading and study of scripture does not cause us to or does not result in us as an individual drawing closer to Jesus, we're missing the point of reading our Bible. And even as Christians, we have to be careful of that. When we're in the Bible, let's be in it to meet the Lord, not to get a greater degree in theology per se. Verse 41, Jesus says, I do not receive honor from men. So again, he indicts them not because he was, you know, in a sense, needing of their honor, but he indicts them that they did not honor him the way that they should as the Son of God. He didn't receive the honor he deserved. And again, the Jews may have thought he was being upset or embittered here because they were rejecting him as Messiah. But Jesus goes on, verse 32, to say that's not the case. He says, but I know, verse 42, that you do not have the love of God in you. So he knew the greater issue was the problem in their heart. And Jesus says, the real problem is this, you do not have the love of God in you. That is, Jesus saw that there was not a genuine love for God in their hearts. And again, being very religious in lifestyle, but not having a sincere love for God in your heart can honestly have quite a, a blinding, disruptive effect upon a person's proper perspective. And that's what Jesus is trying to indicate in these final verses here. He says, I've come in my Father's name, verse 43, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. I look at the words of Jesus there and I have to say, is it not very amazing how when we as human beings reject the truth, how we become susceptible to believe a lot of erroneous things? Jesus says, I come in my name, the one who is the son of God, who can give you what you really need and you won't receive me. But he says, but if another comes in his own name, a sinful man, him you will receive. Now, Jesus here could prophetically even be making reference to the Antichrist. As the Jews, we know the Bible teaches, due to their spiritual blindness, rejected Christ. But the Bible says, will one day receive the Antichrist who comes in his own name to offer himself as a false Messiah to let them rebuild their temple and gives a treaty with them during the beginning of the tribulation period. Jesus says, verse 44, how can you believe who receive honor from one another, man to man, he says, and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. So he indicates how when his people were concerned more about receiving honor and acceptance with one another more than we care about seeking what honors and pleases God, that can be a spiritually blinding thing. And this was the problem with the Jews. Again, their mistake was they wanted the approval of men and were more concerned about human praise than seeking out 
what honored God, what pleased God, and what would cause Him to be glorified in their lives. And Jesus says, that's the problem. You're seeking the honor of men rather than honor that comes from the only God. And we have to be careful of that, don't we? Because we long for acceptance. We long to to have honor from other people as we live in this life. And sometimes that can be one of the biggest things that robs us from faithfully following Jesus. It's the thing that keeps, I assure you, many people back from getting saved. There are people in your life right now that are not saved because they care too much about what other people think. And they can give all the other excuses. The bottom line is, in the root of their heart, they're a coward. And they're afraid of what people will think and that's why they won't yet come to Christ. Pray God gives them the courage and the faith to get over that. And there are Christians who are not faithfully following Jesus and at times even are trying to be more carnal than they are Christ-like because they're ashamed to be on fire for Christ. And maybe it's just because their other friends are on fire for Christ. Be a trendsetter, by golly. Do something different. Daniel purposed in his heart he wouldn't defile himself and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, hey, we're on board with you. And they followed his good example. And Jesus says, be careful of seeking the honor of men rather than the honor of God. Well, he concludes with verse 45 to 47 with one last challenge to them. He says, don't think that I'll accuse you to the Father. There's one who does accuse you. In other words, Jesus says, I don't need to indict your guilt. Moses himself indicts the fact that you're guilty and that's who you're trusting in. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Again, look what Jesus says. It's repetitious. He says, for Moses wrote about me. Again, Moses did that directly in Deuteronomy 18 about the prophet greater than himself that would come. And he did it indirectly in Genesis through Deuteronomy as we talked about where in the Old Testament scriptures, so much of what Moses wrote, it spoke about Jesus. It pointed people to who Jesus was. And Jesus says, if you really believed what Moses said, you would believe me. He says, verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, the word of God, how will you believe my words? The point Jesus is making here as he closes is if you will not believe the writings of Moses, he's saying, if you will not believe the word of God, then he says, how are you ever going to submit to what Jesus says in your life, who is God of the word? If you don't have a right view of scripture, then he says you're never going to be able to have a right view of Jesus. Notice the root issue is, again, the emphasis of Jesus' words, believing. Choosing to believe or choosing not to believe. Because what we personally believe about the Lord Jesus, it doesn't affect him. He's the Lord either way. But it affects us. It affects us. Our view of Scripture and what we believe about Jesus will influence our perspective on everything. And that's why I give you this exhortation this morning. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, the wonderful thing is everything else starts to come into proper perspective. If you look at life through the lens of Christ and you fix your eyes on Jesus, all of a sudden everything else comes into perspective. All right, Lord, yeah, I don't like this is going on, but this is making me look to you more. Lord, I don't understand. But you know what, Lord? Even though I don't understand this, I know where I'm headed eternally. I know why I exist on this earth. And Lord, so help me to glorify you in this and and point to to you through this in in, in the lives. And, And when you look at things through the lens of Christ, everything comes into better focus. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray.